first reading Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 4a. That would be on page 13 in the Bible, if you are using it. The call of Abram. The Lord had said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those... Wrong, sorry. And whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. That's the first reading. And the second reading is uh, from the Gospel according to St. John, and it's chapter 3, starting to read at verse 1 to 17, and it can be found on page 1065 of the Church Bible. That's John chapter 3. Jesus teaches Nicodemus. Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God. For no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. Jesus replied, Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. How can somebody be born again when they are old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born? Jesus answered, Very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the spirit. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and do you not understand these things? Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know, and we testify to what we have seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things, and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his own one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, 
but to save the world through him. This is the word of the Lord. Well, I think I'm standing. hope you can all hear me okay. I imagine all of you this morning here, or nearly everyone this morning, has at some time flown in a commercial jet airliner. And wherever you've flown from, to probably to a holiday or to America, flown from Stansted, Heathrow, or whatever. I wonder whether you ever wonder how on earth does a plane fly? So here we have a plane. This is a modern A380. It's a double-decker passenger plane. It flies about 500-plus passengers at a time, etc. So when it's fully laden with 500 passengers, crew, your baggage, and also planes carry freight as well, fully laden with fuel, it weighs, can't read that there, 634 tonnes. That keeps it on the ground. This plane does not want to fly. So how does it fly? So just in your imagination, go back to when you flew, you've boarded your aircraft, the, board, the, the door has been closed, you're strapped in, hope you're strapped in, the pilot's given permission, and now he starts taxiing out slowly towards the runway. I usually find at stance that there's about three or four planes ahead of us and you have to wait. So eventually he's given permission from the control tower to turn onto the runway. So he turns facing down the runway. Stansted runway, like most others, is about two miles long. Most pilots will hold the plane on the brakes, look at everything, everything's a go, winds the engines up. Most of our engines have two, planes have two engines, that has four. Full takeoff power, releases brakes, and you accelerate down the runway. I love that feeling. You're pushed into the back of the seat because you are really accelerating. And it doesn't matter which jet aircraft you fly in. Pretty well all of them need to be doing 140 knots, which in our speak is about 172 miles per hour before they can take off. And then the pilot does something you're not aware of. He just lifts the nose very slightly. And at this point, the wings meet the air at a small angle. And an amazing thing happens. The wings lift the plane up because that's where lift comes from. That's how the plane flies. Sufficient surface area on the wings, sufficient speed over them, and a lot of people don't realise the angle at which the wing meets the air is critical. And at that point, the aircraft starts to rise up away from the ground. The pilot probably steepens the climb as he gets climb. That's how it flies. The wings produce lift that raises the aircraft away from the ground. Now this is Sunday morning. This is a sermon. What is Graham talking about planes for? So here's another question. What did Jesus preach about during his three years of teaching? See, up to the age of 30, he's in his car father's carpenter shop, apprenticed to be a carpenter. But around the age of 30... He gets 12 men around him and goes out teaching. So if we were back in that time, he would be here this morning in front of us teaching. So what does he teach? Most of us think it's the gospel, which is things like we're sinners, lost, need to be found and forgiven, need to repent, need to accept him by faith, be, be born again, receive salvation, receive eternal life and go to heaven when we die. Now, he did talk about sin. He did talk about forgiveness. He did certainly mention repentance, and he often mentions salvation. 
Actually, it's probably known in John's Gospel you meet that term, eternal life. And as far as I can see, nowhere in any of the Gospels did Jesus ever say, when you die, you're going to heaven. Probably the only place that's close is what Tim mentioned last week, in my Father's house are many resting places. So what did he teach? What was his priority? And this is what I think Jesus taught most of the time, the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. They're one and the same thing. Some gospel writers use heaven, some use God. Constantly on Jesus' words was kingdom of heaven or kingdom of God. And he actually said a very significant thing. He said, my kingdom is not of this world. My kingdom is not of this world. If something is of this world, you can describe it. And considering we're thinking about aircraft, you cannot see air, but you can describe it. But if something's not of the kingdom of God, you cannot describe it. So what Jesus will often say is something like this. The kingdom of heaven is like. The kingdom of heaven is like. And then he will say something like, and we know the stories, the kingdom of heaven is like a farmer who goes out and sows seed, and there's weed, and there's plowing, and all the rest of it. He's in a rural farming community. Or he might say, the kingdom of heaven is like this little mustard seed. It's really small, but it grows into an amazing bush, and the birds of the air come into the bush. Well, if Jesus was here in the 21st century, maybe he would say, the kingdom of heaven is like a plane taking off and flying to its destination. And that comes up because we're looking at John 3. And in John chapter 3, verse 3, he says to Nicodemus something very important. And he actually prefaces it in most translations, in our translation, he says very truly, just the point for you, in Jewish language, if you wish to emphasize something, you repeat the word truth twice. So he actually said, probably in Hebrew, truly, truly, he's saying to Nicodemus, open your ears up, listen, this is very important. And then he says, very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born from above. No one can see the kingdom of God unless they're born from above. Now I know ever since the King James Version, authorised version, all the way through to the loved NIV, most translators use the expression born again. But if you had kept your Bible open, I think at page 1065, you do keep your Bibles open occasionally during sermon, maybe, you will see there is a footnote. And the footnote says, or born from above. And I believe personally that's much better from what the Greek says, born from above. But not just the language. This is what our amazing God does. He raises us from above, brings about the birth from above, raises us up into the kingdom of heaven in Jesus. And he doesn't do it once. He sustains us in the kingdom of heaven. That's why I'm not keen on born again, sorry. On the God channels, I am born again. The problem with born again is you can say as a Christian, that's it, been born again, got the baseball cap, got the sweatshirt, tick the box, I'm a Christian. But it's not one off. God continues to sustain us by his grace because Jesus Christ died on the cross 
and rose again. When did we leave the resurrection out in our preaching, by the way? Or our Bible study or our prayers? And he poured out the Holy Spirit. Because of all that, our God raises us up into the kingdom of God, into Jesus, into the life of Jesus, and sustains us in it forevermore, if we allow it. That's why I believe the plane taking off is a good illustration of what God does. He lifts us from above, lifts us above just being earthly people, lives us into this kingdom which you cannot describe accurately, but you can show what it's like, and continues onwardly to sustain us forevermore in the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. But how does the plane take off? So that's the thing, lift from above, born from above, just an analogy of what God does. But I said, in order for the plane to take off, it has to be doing about 170 miles per hour minimum before it can start to fly. And even when it reaches its cruise altitude, doing about 500, 550 miles per hour, the wings are still sustaining it. And the reason it can do that is because in the case of that aircraft, it's got four engines, and most of the ones we fly in have two very powerful engines. And what the engines do, it doesn't matter whether it's a propeller, by the way, or modern jet, it thrusts the aircraft forward, down the runway or through the air. That's what the power does. And we have within us that power. It's the power of the Holy Spirit. That is the power that enables us to live the Christian life. Now, there are a few Christians around. I'm sure there's none in this church, but they go on and on about where the Holy Spirit is really working and there's revival over there and amazing miracles over there and they're always looking out there. Now, our gracious God from time to time does amazing things in certain places. Hallelujah! But I just wonder whether it's symptomatic of our modern society that we want the latest gizmo, the latest thing, the excitement and forget this amazing thing that God's Holy Spirit lives in each one of us who are following Jesus. That's marvellous. And maybe we get distracted by the amazing things, which they are, but the amazing thing is that in each one of us following Jesus, we have the very spirit within us, the power of God, that enables us to be raised into the kingdom of God, the life in Jesus, and continue in that because we have it in us. Paul actually says in one of his letters, the same spirit that raised Jesus Christ from death to life lives in each one of you. That's what God has done. He has raised us into life. Yes, he's born again, but he continues to raise us up and sustain us if we allow him to do so. And it's the power of the Holy Spirit in each one of us. Not just in miracles, great as they are, but in every day, living in Jesus in every way. That is what he does. So we need to remember that, rejoice in that, and allow the Holy Spirit in every moment, in every way, to lift us up. Now that would be easy if all of that's what happened. But unfortunately something else comes into play. You see, we don't think air has resistance. One of the things I like to do when I'm preaching is I do like to walk around. Just a quirk of mine, I don't like to be stuck behind a lectern. So I can walk around, and I have no understanding that the air is holding me up. I could run up and down the aisle, not going to do it, and I have no understanding there's air. 
You start going on a motorbike at 70 miles per hour or 90 miles per hour and you need air. When that plane is doing 170, it's a big plane, it's running into a lot of air resistance. And what that does is to drag the aircraft back, slow it up, it's called drag. And now you have it, the four forces on an aircraft. What drags us up back in our Christian life? I think there are three things. I became a Christian at the age of 18. Yes, I was a teenager a long time ago, but I was a teenager. I actually was quite actually a bright teenager because I was trying to get my A-levels at the time. And I joined a very lively Anglican Youth Fellowship with about 50-plus people. We were probably aged about 14 through to early 20s, and we met on a Sunday evening, sang our songs, didn't have modern songs then, and had Bible study, etc. But I had never been baptised as a child. So I was baptised into the Church of England and then confirmed. And in those days, we didn't have modern English. What we had was the Book of Common Prayer, 1662. This is the one my mother gave me when I was baptised. Lovely Tudor English, but I'm a teenager. And when you are baptised, the priest standing in front of you asks you certain questions. It happens today, we happen to have a modern service in modern English. If it's a baby, the parents and the godparents are asked the questions on behalf of the children. But if you're old enough, and 18 I was old enough, to answer the questions. And this is one of the questions the priest asked me. I'm a teenager. Doest thou, pardon, dost thou renounce the devil and all his works, the vain pomp and glory of this world? What? with all covetous desires of the same and the carnal desires of the flesh, so that thou wilt not follow or be led by them. Yeah. And then you have to say, I renounce them all. Well, I must have said that because I was duly baptised. But there are three things there which I think are still useful. The world, the flesh, and the devil. Now, in the modern service, they've left out the world, as far as I can see, and changed the word flesh to sin, whether that helps or not. But I think these three things are helpful to understand that may hold us back. And let's look at the flesh first briefly. The flesh is not our bodies, by the way. There's nothing wrong with our bodies. They need to be treated with dignity and respect, but God created them and they're okay. It's not what the Bible means by the word flesh, by the way. One of the problems from the early church just in passing was the very, very early church was Jewish and they didn't have a particular problem. But the Greek-speaking philosophical people came in and said, oh, spirit is wonderful and holy and bodies in everyday life are horrid and nasty and against the spirit. Paul had to regularly sort of undo all this junk. What is meant by the flesh is our fallen nature that leads us not to follow God. Tim last week spoke on temptation. Why do we give in to temptation? Because we have a fallen nature, a tendency. Paul sums this up very well in, in chapter 7 of Romans, but in my opinion, one of the most brilliant letters in the New Testament. But I'm a bit biased about Paul, but at the end he sums it up. And remember this, Paul has had a dramatic conversion and met Jesus. He's had three years of absorbing the gospel. He's planting churches and writing letters. And he says, in effect, this. He says, do you know, he says, there are some times, he said, when I find myself not making God smile, I don't go with the kingdom of God. I don't do things that help other people. They're not full of love. They're selfish, self-centered. And I find myself doing those. 
And these things that don't make God smile, they're not like the kingdom of God. They're selfish, self-centered, and all the rest of it. I find myself doing them. Now, we call that sin, but the first is just as much. And Paul would have said, that's my fallen nature. And then he says, effectively, in whatever your translation, oh, wretched man that I am, stupid, wretched man that I am, that I don't do the good and I find myself doing the bad. Now, one of the reasons I like Paul is because he uses the word but occasionally, but he uses it differently. I find in our society, and particularly in the church sometimes, people tell you something really good. They say, oh, Graham, something's happening. And you go, oh, this is wonderful. And then they say, but. And at that point, my heart drops. I shouldn't tell you this, but at my house group, I try to go out on a blessing. Like, let's have a nice blessing to go home to sleep. And I've just done that, and somebody tells me some bad news. And I think, I don't need bad news at 9.30 <laughs> at night. Sorry, my house group. So Paul starts off and says, yes, okay, wretched man that I am. I don't think he puts but in it. He then says, but thanks be to God who gives me the victory. Thanks be to God who gives me the victory. So he's admitted that all of us have this tendency not to do the good and sometimes to do the bad. That's our fallen nature. That's what is meant by flesh in the New Testament. But then Paul reminds us that God can give us the victory. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory. And the second thing that holds us back is the world. So that's the flesh. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory. So we can overcome that tendency if we do it in the power of God. But the second thing that holds us back is the world. Now again, you have to be a bit careful with this word world. The world can mean the created world in which we live. The universe that God created. And it's okay, it's his universe. He created it. It belongs to him, always did, and always will. Again, some people so emphasize all the brokenness of our creation, do they forget that actually it's his world? But the other use of the world, just like fallen nature is, our world is fallen. And it means the society in which we live. And the society in which we live is often feeding us a load of rubbish. We are bombarded by television, radio, magazines, newspapers, gurus and people who tell you everything, let alone social media, Facebook and Twitter. Yes, I know there's some nice pictures on it and some nice little twee stuff. But in amongst all that communication from our world is things that are contrary to the kingdom of God. Things that tell me the important thing about me is my image or whether I'm successful, whether I've done this or own that. The world is feeding us lies compared to the kingdom of God, and we so easily absorb it. And it drags us back from following Jesus and being alive in the kingdom of God. We need all of us, individually and the church particularly, needs to know the kingdom of God. Now, you could do a whole sermon on how we overcome it, but one of the other books I love in the Bible, apart from Paul's letters, I do love the whole Bible, I just love the Psalms. And one of the psalmists says this, I have hidden your word in my heart. You see, we're told we need to read the Bible, but we don't need to just read it. We need to absorb it into our heart. We need to take God's truth into us, the written word which shows the living word. With them, we have a counteraction to the world's rubbish and lies. We have it right within us. 
Take it in however you find that. It's not a case of you must read your Bible. Feed upon it. Let it go deep into you so that you have his word hidden in your heart. And the final thing that drags us back is the devil. Yes, we do have a devil. We have an enemy. But I do think, again, some Christians, none in this church, so I'm not getting in anybody, overemphasize the devil. I've almost had Christians saying to me, oh, Graham, I had a really bad week last week. The devil was getting at me. And I feel like saying, really? Because my own fallen nature and the world around me is doing enough because the devil has already corrupted those, in a sense, or distorted them, to drag me back. Why does old bossy boots need to put his boot in? Now, let me say this. We must not be naive. We do have an enemy. But we overrate. We worship the King of Kings, the Son of the Almighty God who created the whole universe, whose power is beyond comprehension, whose wisdom outsmarts anything. And through the Holy Spirit, we have that power within us. Who is he compared to that? It really is not very powerful. He can only lie and cheat and steal stuff and tell us a load of porkies. Why do we believe them? If we're listening to Jesus and God's kingdom, then we then. And John writing to the early church says that in effect. Greater, he says, is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Greater is he that is in every one of us in Jesus through the Spirit than he that is in the world. So these things don't have to drag us back. We can overcome and rise up and fly in God's kingdom by his grace through the power of his spirit, through the power of the risen Christ, which is available to each one of us if we choose to do so. So that's what I'm saying this morning. We can fly in the kingdom of God because God has raised us up through the death and resurrection of Jesus and the work of the Spirit, continues to sustain us in that life day by day through the power of the Spirit. And we can overcome the world, the flesh and the devil, the things that try to drag us back. But let me say, this is an everyday thing. Sometimes we have a tendency to go, oh yeah, the spiritual's wonderful, it's church, and it's Bible, and it's all this. But it's every day. So let me say this, if you're a teacher, and I know there's some teachers here, your teaching is not mundane or secondary. When you're in the classroom tomorrow, fly in the power of Christ in through the way you teach. And if you're a grandparent, and I know there's some grandparents here, because Sue and I are grandparents, these days you find yourself looking after the grandchildren. Well, that's not separate. That's still part of being in Jesus. That's part of flying in the kingdom of God. And if you're an accountant, and I know we have some accountants, some people say, well, these figures on balance sheets, they're boring, dry, dull, and nothing to do. But if accountancy is your thing, then fly in the kingdom of God in your accountancy. Whatever we do, do it as unto Jesus in the power of the kingdom. It's a 24 by 7. Tomorrow and the rest of the day and the years to come, because we have an amazing God through Jesus, the cross and the resurrection and the spirit, has raised us up into life in him, sustains us in that life in him, and we can overcome all that holds us back. And it's a 24-7. So I leave you with this challenge. Are we going to people who fly in the kingdom of God or be earthbound and dragged back by anything?
challenge to me as well as anybody else. Let's be people in this picture who are flying in the kingdom of God. Amen.